I wanted to, I want to mention that I never said anything at work because I didn't want to be known as the trans FMO or the trans firefighter or the trans ops chief or whatever. I wanted to just be known as a good leader and a good firefighter. And so I never brought it up because I didn't want it. I didn't want that to be the issue. So then once I retired, then I felt I could speak up and feel like it was time to say something. I didn't need anyone raising the LGBT flag in fire camp by God. I just wanted just to be treated like everyone else. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast about how we interact with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Bontai, and we have a great episode lined up today with Bobby Scopa. Bobby is a retired wildland firefighter, an author, a podcast host, and is also a trans woman. And we talk quite a bit about her experiences as a trans woman working in fire. And we'll get into that in a little bit here. But before we get too deep into this episode, I wanted to thank you guys for the outpouring of support. After posting the Jane Park episodes, I had a lot of folks reach out and say that they really appreciated Jane's perspective. So I'm looking forward to continuing uh, to speak with women and trans women and non-binary folk and queer folks to kind of bring in a different perspective into the fire space. I really feel like those stories aren't being told to the extent that they should be, and those experiences are really critical to moving forward with greater diversity initiatives and inclusivity initiatives in federal and state and all the other agencies that uh, work in fire. I think a really common question that gets asked uh, amongst federal agencies especially is how to retain people and how to retain really high quality people into the fire world, into the fire space. And I think having these conversations and talking about the challenges of being a woman or a non-binary individual or a trans woman is really essential for bringing more awareness into that space and building a more inclusive and safer environment for folks who are underrepresented in the wildland fire and the prescribed fire spaces. So I appreciate you guys listening, and I am looking forward to talking to more guests that um, can sort of provide those perspectives and those experiences and uh, maybe provide a little bit more awareness for the folks who work in fire now and who might not get a lot of exposure to the experiences of um, those underrepresented groups. So uh, thanks for listening. Please share this with anybody who you think might be interested And before we get into the episode, I wanted to thank Forest Proud for recently coming on as a sponsor of Life with Fire. Uh, Forest Proud is a really cool organization. They're a nonprofit, and they promote and support forest climate solutions and very generally highlight the critical role that forests and forest products play in the future of our climate. They believe that forests provide powerful climate solutions. They believe that forest management is how we deliver those solutions. And there are just wonderful advocates for products, programs, and initiatives that sort of provide those innovative solutions that we need for healthy and resilient forests. So I felt like Forest Proud's values really aligned with uh, Life with Fire's values as well. We'll be sharing about Forest Proud quite a bit on our social media over the next few months, and we'll have a few more episodes that are sponsored by them. And I encourage you to go follow Forest Proud on Instagram. It's just at Forest Proud. And if you find yourself really excited by what they're doing, you can donate or join as a member. So thanks again to Forest Proud for sponsoring the podcast. And I look forward to sharing more about what they're up to on our Instagram 
and continuing to share some podcast episodes and some content that sort of aligns with their values and their initiatives. All right, let's talk a little bit more about today's guest, Bobby Scopa. Bobby was a firefighter for over 40 years. She retired recently and is now an author and has her own podcast called Bobby on Fire, which I suggest that you go check out. She's also a trans woman, and she has written a book about her experiences as both a firefighter and a trans woman. That book is called Both Sides of the Fire Line, and it's available for pre-purchase right now on Amazon. I can link to that in our episode's show notes, but I would highly recommend you guys go check out Bobby's website, bobbyonfire.com, and listen to some of her stories from her pretty extensive background in fire. She truly has no shortage of stories, and she gave us a few as well on this episode, so you can look forward to that. She's a very good storyteller. I really appreciated her ability to um, kind of share some of the things that she's experienced. And overall, I think Bobby's perspectives and experiences will be pretty enlightening for almost anybody who's worked in fire or who is even vaguely interested in wildland fire and the challenges of being an underrepresented group in the wildland fire space. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. And here is Bobby Scopa for Life with Fire. Started in 74 for the Forest Service as a seasonal while I was going to college. I graduated, worked a couple years for the state doing fire and conservation both. I went to a fire department for about 15 years and um, and then went back and got a master's and then went to the feds, went back to the feds. And uh, so I have degrees, you know, in natural resource management and uh, fire management and fire administration. And uh, then I worked, uh, when I went back to work for the feds, you know, FMO, uh, Chief Two on the Boise, Chief One on the Okanagan Wenatchee, then the regional, off, regional forester's office um, as the assistant fire director for operations and, and a type one operations section chief. So I worked many, many, many years as a division supervisor, then uh, ops two and then ops one. So. That's a quick version. The quick and dirty. Yeah. Wow. Um, can you tell me, uh, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about kind of your ops experience and like maybe what you've been doing since retirement? Well, um, my ops experience, um, I let those quals uh, lapse because um, I'm 67 and I'm not interested in going out to fire camp anymore. I mean, if I, if I was going to go out and do a little mentoring here and there, that'd be okay. But um, I'm not quite interested in actually, um, I, was having, I was having lunch yesterday with a friend of mine who's a type one operation, uh, type one IC. And he was telling me, you know, I think I'm just going to let my qualifications lapse. They, they come up in, they, they lapse in October. He says, I just don't want to do it. His his perspective is it takes too much effort. You know, when you get re retired, it's hard to get back into that mode where you're up at five in the morning or 4.30 in the morning, going to bed at 10 or 11 and going nonstop all day long. And so I'm retired and since retirement, uh, I was elected to uh, a, uh, uh, as a commissioner on a fire for a fire district up in Washington for a short while. 
I volunteer at uh, the Botanical Gardens and I talk about yes. ecology and I try to enter, uh, infuse fire ecology into all that. Um, and I've written a book. Uh, it's my memoir. It's going to get published in uh, September. It comes out in the bookstores. It's available right now um, online. <laughs> so you can, you can order it. And, um, and so I'm writing articles for a monthly article for Wildland Firefighter Magazine. So I'm staying busy and uh, kind of enjoying retirement. No joke. I mean, I got to say, even as a 31-year-old, it's hard to get up at 5 a.m. at fire camp. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, in, it's insane how much it's changed for me, even in like two years. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm becoming a bit of a wimp here. <laughs> if you get out of the habit, it's hard to get back. No doubt. No doubt. Right. Like it's total mindset, but I listened to a few, few of your podcast episodes earlier that I really enjoyed. I liked the one about us, uh, you know, kind of just existing in the chaos, thriving in the chaos and being somewhat ADD. I feel like people who are ADD really thrive in this environment. I felt like I did. I felt like that was relatable to my experience. And then the one about um, even like firefighters cry. I liked that one a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I had a similar, I had, a, I, I just, I think a lot of folks maybe share that experience of like, just like crying for no reason after a fire season ends or after a roll ends. And you're just like, what is going on here? So yeah. I want to encourage my listeners to go listen to your podcast. Cause I've uh, listened to a few episodes now and I've really, it's been really relatable and enjoyable. And you have such a broad background to draw from in those, in those podcasts. Can you actually tell me about that podcast and what inspired you to start it? Well, let me, before I tell you about the podcast in general, there's one that I recommend, especially young women listen to, um, and it's called, Why Is He Always Yelling at Me? And that one is about a supervisor I had that I thought that he thought I was a drone. I was useless. I had to have been because he was always yelling at me. And in the end, he thought I was really excellent. I mean, he gave me a glowing evaluation and anyway. Um, and so I have some lessons there for folks who might take offense sometimes when some crusty guy, you know, is not necessarily polite and uh, we might take it the wrong way. So that's that story. But the website in general, it started. So I have an issue with firefighters being called heroes. I don't like that term. Um, I've survived a, a burnover a fire and there were fatalities and everybody's a hero all of a sudden. And then I see, you know, working for the feds all these years, I would, I would become upset with the pay issue. I would be upset with how we treated our seasonals and our, and our um, uh, less than full-time permanents. And then when people got killed, all of a sudden they're all hero. And so I didn't like that on one hand. On the other hand, the city firefighters driving down this, the street and everybody goes, oh, oh, look at those hero firefighters. You know, and, and speaking from experience, I know how the guys are, the guys I worked with. They, when we were driving down the street and they saw a pretty girl, they would actually try to flex their muscle a little bit to make it look like when their arm's out the window, it looks like they're even more muscular. And, you know, it's like, oh my God. So I had this image of, of um, wanting to demystify the firefighter. And that's how I started. And I thought, well, and I'll throw in some leadership um, uh, lessons to boot. And 
I was going to write these stories down and friends of mine said, oh my God, no, no, we want you to tell the story and we want to hear your voice. And I, I didn't know how that would even work technically. But anyway, with some assistance, uh, a friend of mine helped me set it up. And so Bobby on Fire uh, came into being and, um, and here we are. I'm just shy, maybe a thousand downloads shy of 900,000 stories downloaded. So people have listened to my stories, get closing in on a million times now, which blows me away. Today, for example, um, when I was looking at the site, I think there was like 5,000 downloads today so far. And so um, what is wrong with you people? I mean, don't you have anything better to do than listen to my reminiscing but anyway there's some good i think there's some good leadership lessons in there um um yeah and i have fun telling the stories and i hope that there is actually some good coming from it i think i think there's um i think there's a lot to to learn from even if i don't understand maybe what the lesson is someone else listens to it and says oh you know what here's what i took from that i took this other meaning that you didn't even see so Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you almost feel like your own, like you would have been, you would have found value in these stories as a young firefighter, like when you oh. were starting out in the seventies? Oh, yes. Oh my God. You know, um, I was so stupid and so ill-prepared. I mean, I made every mistake anyone could possibly make as a firefighter, as an employee. Um, and so, but, you know, I'm hoping people are smarter than me because if I had heard these lessons, I might not have been smart enough to understand them or to take them to heart. So I'm hoping there's people out there that's smarter than me who will hear them and say, oh yeah. Um, uh, I had a, I just had a, a story in the Wildland Firefighter uh, online magazine and it's called, um, uh, shoot, I can't remember what it's called. I'll look it up. But it was about my first summer on a hotshot crew, and I was ill-prepared for the hotshot crew, and the crew boss hated me, and um, I had I had so much trouble that year. Um, uh, but the story is entertaining. It's funny, and hopefully someone else that's just starting out will listen to it and say, okay, well, I won't make those same mistakes that she made. Um, um, yeah, so um, I, I, I hope people will take heed, listen to some of these stories and learn. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's, there's something to be said about writing about your own experiences and how satisfying it is to have people to tell, tell you that they relate to it. And then also just helping them understand that like it's totally like all of these things are okay and that we don't all have to be like really macho and like we can right. cry or, you know, like whatever. Like I, I, I found even the ADD conversation. I was like, I relate to this because I do have ADD. I feel like I have ADD. I don't, I'm not technically diagnosed, but um, right. just like all those things can be really relatable. And it's really satisfying when people can, uh, can read your work and feel somewhat more prepared for that experience for, by reading yeah. it. Well, I'm glad you identified with, with some of that because uh, like the crying one, I, no one ever told me that they cried after a fire or after a fire season. And that was like consistent, you know, a, a really hardcore two week assignment. I almost always cried on the way home. I had no idea why, but um, I did. Um, 
so anyway, that's I think that's um, that's good to know other people have those same. And I had, you know, I had comments from guys even who on my website, you know, you can leave comments and they wrote and said, you know what, I do too. I'm a guy and I cry sometimes and I don't know why, but I feel just like this emotional release after the fire is over. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, cool. Can you, uh, can you tell me a bit about your book and what the process of writing that was like? Because I've, I've been wanting to write a book. I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I'm just curious, uh, curious how that all went down and what kind of inspired you? Well, the idea of the book maybe started, I don't know, 10 years ago or more. And, um, and you know, I have all these stories. So then I thought, well, maybe I should just write a book. That was the original idea, just to write a book of short stories. All these stories that I have on my website, turn them into short stories, make a book out of them. And I may still do some of that. But then I thought, well, there's a whole lot more to my story than what is typically on most of the stories on the website, because if your listeners don't know, I'm transgender and I um, spent the first half of my, well, maybe not the half, first, first part of my career as male. And then uh, after grad school, um, I transitioned and, and came back to work as female. So my book is um, my memoir of my life, and it has lots of fire stories. And so it may be a different kind of a book because, you know, fire people will have to put up with hearing the rest of the story about me. And the people who are into all the LGBTQ stuff will have to put up with all the fire stories because I can't tell my story, my whole, I can't tell my life story without including the fire stories. Um, they're entertaining. They are crazy. Um, and the book has lots of them, but not obviously not all. Mm -hmm. um, and so then the process of writing it was, um, it was kind of arduous. It was tough. You know, I'd rather, I think I would have rather climbed out of Feather River Canyon on a July hot day than go through that process of writing all that story again. Uh, <laughs> And so uh, your readers have been on fires. And uh, I, say, I think I think that's a pretty relatable experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The dust, your boots start feeling like they weigh 15 pounds each and you're trudging up like a staircase, but it's a dusty staircase. Yeah, that's the feeling I get. Then it was worse. It was worse writing the book mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I have to, if I'm going to tell the story, I tell the good with the bad. And there's, you know, there was some painful experiences in my life. And so um, the readers will hear that. And But I hope the point, the point of me writing it was to open up the eyes of folks so they, they can understand, get a better feeling, so that if a coworker of theirs is transgender or a family member or, um, you know, someone they know have in their life, that they have some better understanding when it happens and they say, oh, well, you know, Bobby Scope uh, was a good ops chief or Bobby Scope was a good FMO, uh, was a good firefighter and, and was transgender. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's all possible because I think the, my perception is the public has a very weird skewed um, perception of what it means to be transgender. You know, it's something they see on TV, you know, something that's a movie star or a some big media person and I'm none of that. And, um, and uh, so that, that's how the book came to be. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope it does some good out there. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences as a trans woman, especially early on when you were transitioning? Um, was that, that must have been in the 80s, 90s? Well, yeah, it was in the 90s, but um, so, so it was much more difficult for me working as a male in the fire world than it was as a female. So that may be counterintuitive, but the reality was maybe I was uncomfortable in my skin back in those days and I struggled. I was a good firefighter, I was a good leader, but I, I struggled, everything was really hard to, to be successful. I was always swimming upstream. My transition was really, it was unusual in that it, I really had no issue with transition. I, came back into the fire world. I, I had gone to grad school, I was studying, I was studying fire and forestry, and um, I was going out as an AD a couple summers, and I guess that would have been when I was transitioning maybe, uh, but I, I, it's hard to describe, but I, I passed, I was perceived as female right away, so I never had any difficulty in the transition. I end my career as a female uh, firefighter was way more successful and easy than it was when I was when I was trying to pass as a guy. So um, that may sound unusual, and your readers may or your listeners may have a hard time understanding that. But from my from where I sat, it was much easier being a female firefighter than it was being a male firefighter, and because uh, once I once I came back to work and I was a female, I was an FMO. I had all the issues that any FMO has, and especially any female FMO has, you know, I was working in, my first job was in California. I had to deal with some uh, Cal Fire Battalion chiefs who were really good guys, but they were crusty, old school, and, and, um, and they're like, who's this, who's this woman coming and, you know, uh, working next to me in my division and I was a division soup on many many fires and um and so you know you deal with that was the regular stuff that was normal that that didn't bother me because it was so much better than it was before I transitioned um and so I think my my perception is that firefighters could deal way better with a strong competent female firefighter or female fire chief than they could with a male who was perceived as being less than masculine. So my perception is if a, if a, you know, some hotshot soup sees, is working for a division supervisor who is um, not perceived as being masculine enough, that, that poor guy is gonna have a lot of trouble. When that hotshot soup was dealing with me, I was tough. I was strong. I knew what I wanted. I was a good leader. I butted heads with those guys, but we got along great. And so my life became so much easier after I transitioned. Um, wow. Yeah, that is a fascinating perspective, like totally counterintuitive, but it makes it makes complete sense. Um, yeah. that, that makes sense to me. Um, has have, in your perception has it changed has the dynamic changed have you seen less of those less of those crusty old-fashioned kind of guys roaming around or yeah how has that dynamic sort of shifted mm -hmm. or maybe how is that how is that inclusive 
uh, inclusivity dynamic shifted since the 80s? Yeah, I think there are more, I think there are more guys these days who are uh, <laughs> evolved, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but they are a little bit, they're a little bit more wise. Um, there are more guys in operations now who, who aren't, uh, and I, when I use the term knuckle dragger, I really don't mean that derogatorily. I mean that with affection. I, re I really do. Because I've been called the knuckle dragger and I fit that bill sometimes. But <laughs> there are more guys these days in operations specifically who are, um, who are better and easier and, and more understanding um, than there used to be. Now, there's still plenty of knuckle draggers out there. I was doing a, I was doing a training assignment on a type one fire. I was an ops trainee. And I was, I had a guy who was from the Midwest somewhere. He was a division. Oh, I was a branch director. That was it. I was a branch director and he was from the Midwest. He, when I would try to give him direction, and I, and I give direction, I'm always open say, hey, this is the end state we're looking for. How do you think, what's, I'm thinking this, what do you think, you know, how, how, how would we best meet this end state? And um, so I'm always open to suggestions, but I, so I'm not, not like I'm just giving him barking orders at him. He couldn't look me in the eye. He would talk to the, he would talk to the other men that, you know, that were not his supervisor rather than talk to me. Um, and I about came unglued a couple of times and my trainer was just like, ratchet it down, ratchet it down, it's going to be all right, you know. And, um, and so there's plenty of those guys out there still, but I would say um, that they're, I mean, because a lot of the guys I worked with, although it was never talked about, a lot of the guys I worked with knew I was transgender. They never said a word. Um, but, you know, so if they never said a word and they were good, then, then, uh, then I think that they were better than the old days when, if you had just mentioned it, because I have some stories about things that were said, uh, in front of me by people who didn't know I was transgender and that, you know, that's tough to take. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine. Can you talk a bit about like what a, like what environments made you feel most welcome, even though it was probably not clear maybe that you were transgender to a lot of the crews that you worked with, but um, what kind of characteristics of different crews or environments made it feel more inclusive or more safe? You know, it's, I may not be the average bear on this one, but my perspective is I felt the most welcomed and comfortable and comfortable with the crowd is when I was teased and <laughs> mistreated, you know, in a way like everyone else. So when I was, when I was, um, when people made jokes to me or at me or, uh, had opportunities to, um, I don't want to say ridicule cause that's negative, but if I could be just one of the guys in the midst of my ops folks, then I felt great. If they gave me crap when I did something stupid, then great, because you they knew I was going to give it to them. And so if I, 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 if I wasn't 
uh, treated less like one of the group, then I felt I didn't want to be treated in any way special because I was a woman or if they knew I was trans for any of that. I just wanted to be, I mean, in that environment, you got to be one of the one of the crew, whether it's a ops group on a team or whether it's um, on a crew or an engine. Um, yeah, I, for me, that's all I wanted. Yeah. I, I didn't need anyone raising the LGBT flag in fire camp by God. I just wanted just to be treated like everyone else. Absolutely. I mean, I relate to that. I remember feeling like such a sense of camaraderie when I would be involved in a group, in a group joke, like, yeah. like nicknames were getting thrown around or when, you know, when you're involved with, uh, or when, when you're all able to joke and ridicule each other equally. I like, I like loved that. That was a huge part of that sense of camaraderie for me, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Same thing for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a bit about those? I want to hear some stories. <laughs> Do you have a particularly memorable one or one that you were like the most excited to be writing about, especially with your book? Well, um, you know, here's a, here's a story that I, I kind of enjoy, um, telling, um, I don't think I've told it on the, I don't remember if I've told it on the website or not yet, but it's in the book. And, and so I'm in Montana on, uh, fire, large fires in whatever year it was, 2000 or 99 when we, the Northern Rockies were all on fire. Um, it was probably before you were born, young lady. But 99, I was 91. <laughs> okay. Let it let the record show. <laughs> so, um, so in I think it was 99, maybe I was up in northern Montana, um, western Montana, went on fires, and um, there were no resources. I mean, we had the crews. There were no crews left. There was no, um, there were no uh, engines left. And there's a, there's a type one team on this fire and I get sent up as a division supervisor and they say, well, we got no resources for you, but when we get some, we'll give them to you. And in the meantime, why don't you scout out your division? And my, my division was like eight miles long, you know, cause they had no division soups either. They had no, I was like, there was a whole team and then there's me, <laughs> a couple other people. But um, so I scout out and I get things figured out and I come up with a plan and the uh, team finally hires a bunch of local loggers. So I've got some skidgens, I've got dozers, I've got some harvesters, I got all sorts of logging equipment, but no strike team leader, no dozer bosses. So it's them and me. So I picked uh, a guy, one of them to be in charge. I gave him a radio and they had their own little CBs that they were talking on. But I, I, um, <laughs> I don't mean this derogatorily, even though it might sound like it, but I picked the guy, the logger that had the most teeth to be in charge. <laughs> so, so, you know, they come to work pre-dirty, you know, they show up in their overalls and they're greasy and the dust and all that, you know, and I picked the guy who looked the cleanest, whatever. So I put him in charge. So I said, okay, you guys get all the low boys up to this drop point, showed them on the map where to go. I'm going to keep scouting things out and then you guys get all the low, get all the equipment off the low boys and then we'll get lined out from there. So I have a local uh, forest service um, AFMO, I think, or a fuels person as my guide to know the area. And she's got the, she's got a CB with her, a little CB handheld, and she's listening into the loggers. 
And so I'm scouting out ahead, figuring out where we're going to go. And she starts laughing. And I'm like, what are you laughing about? Oh, it's just these loggers, these guys, you know. And she knows them all because they're all local. She's local. And, and she keeps giggling. Oh, that's pretty funny. I'm like, what is going on? And she said, well, here, listen. And she turns up the volume. And I hear these guys, these knuckleheads saying, um, yeah, uh, Baywatch. Where's, you know, something about Baywatch and this Baywatch that. And I'm like, so I look at this gal who's in my truck and I said, who are they talking about? What, what's Baywatch? And she goes, don't you know the TV show Baywatch? I said, yeah, I know the TV show. I've never watched it, but I, I know what it is. I said, why do they keep talking about Baywatch? She's laughing. Now she's, she's like rolling on the floor of the truck. They're talking about you, your Baywatch. And I'm like, oh <laughs> my God, what are you talking about? Well, I was from California. I was driving this yellow BLM truck with a custom bumper and the big roll cage and all that jazz or whatever you call it in the back of the lights. And apparently she said it looks just like the trucks they drove on Baywatch. And since I was from California, they were calling me Baywatch. And I thought, all right, well, this isn't going to work at all. So, um, so I didn't know what to do just yet, but I thought, well, all right, I, I got to put this one away, figure out what I'm going to do about it. So I catch up to the guys and they're getting all the trucks unloaded. And, uh, and I talked to the guy that I put in charge and I said, what do you think? You think we can make it up this ridge and we're going to, you know, we're going to excavate all this or not excavate, but we're going to harvest all this timber. We're going to deck it. And then we're going to have hand crews eventually come through and put line in um, uh, where we, where we can and use the dozer where we can't. So anyway, um, so I finished talking to him and I look back at my truck and all the guys, all those local loggers, they were sitting or they were sitting around my truck, but I mean, some of them were underneath my truck looking at the bumper because this was a custom made bumper and it was custom painted. And in actuality, it was made by the guy who makes all the bumpers for Chuck Norris's truck. So I didn't even know who Chuck Norris was at the time, but the guy who had my truck, my bumper made because it had a winch and anyway. So it was, a, it was a cool looking truck, but these guys were so into the bumper and they were like fondling the bumper. I mean, they were running their hands over the bumper. There were guys on their back underneath the bumper looking at, I'm like, oh, for Pete's sake. So I thought, well, here's my opportunity. So now if your listeners don't like cussing, cover your ears for a second, because as I walked back to my truck, I said, haven't you guys ever seen a fucking bumper? Now, God damn it, get back to work. And they jumped up and they went running off like, like uh, rats scared off, you know, in the dark. And, and all of a sudden they run back and now they're back to work. Now, later, the guy I'd put in charge said that was the best thing you could have ever done. Um, you got their attention. And they never, they never called me Baywatch after that. Now, I had a great assignment with those guys. They were, they were, they would do anything I asked them to do. Um, and we have gotten to good, good firefighting then. And eventually I got some strike team leaders and I got some hand crews and we were actively fighting fire. And at the end of the assignment, I started getting a cold and I asked the IC if he'd mind if I stayed, spend a night uh, in the hotel in town, because I knew if I could just get off the ground for one night, I usually, that was my 
how I figured things out. My sore throat would go away if I could just sleep in, inside and get off the ground. He said, yeah, no problem. And I was going home the next day anyway. So um, that group of loggers insisted I meet them at the bar that night in town. Oh, you got to come for a beer. And I was like, oh, I don't know. You know. So, so I go and I, they made me feel like the conquering hero. You know how we talked about you just want to be a part of the group? They, this bar had these little round um, wooden tokens. And if you want to buy someone a beer, you just bought a token and gave them the token. I had so many tokens in my pockets by the end of the evening. I must have had 50, 75 tokens coming out of my pockets. Um, they loved working for me. They, they, I had so many good experiences. But the end of the evening, I'm sitting at the bar by myself, just kind of quietly looking at the mirror behind the bar where all the bottles are lined up and they've got a big sign I hadn't noticed. And on the sign in this little Western Montana logging town, ranching and logging town, the sign said, no queers allowed. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't, how, how would my experience have been had they known who I was? Um, now, I don't know, I, I can't answer that, but I had, I started out with those guys disrespecting me because they thought I was just, I was just some, you know, I don't know what they thought I was, some fluffy female from California that they were making fun of. And then to the end, I mean, there were instances where they were ready to, they were ready to rumble for me. Some, some overhead came by or some local district employee came by and started giving me a hard time. These guys were ready, literally ready to beat them up. I had to get them to get back off and get them back to work. And then at the end, then they, then I see their sign in their bar says, <laughs> no queers allowed. <coughs> Excuse me. So that was, um. I thought that was an <coughs> interesting story. That's fascinating. That is not where I saw that story going. You, you can, my life has been this series of roller coaster rides of ups and downs. And that experience was all positive to me because I believe with those knuckleheads, had I said, hey, you guys, here's my, here's my story. Here's my background. I think they would have been my experiences with other people, they would have been just fine. Mm -hmm. But it's because they don't know. It's because they just think they know and, and we, which we all, we all have that same, um, we all have that same approach. We think we know what we know oftentimes when we don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like a perfect encapsulation of that, of that mindset. Cause they sure, I'm, I'm sure that they would have been like, oh, interesting. Like you might've been one of the first people that they'd met that had told them that. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a good, I think that's a good example of my professional life, mm -hmm. you know, um, start out people thinking one way about you. Then after you've proved yourself, which we all have to do, um, then they have a different, they have a different take on who you are. And, and, uh, you know, then these guys, I had, a, I had a straight team leader show up you know, a few days into this assignment and said, I don't know what's going on here, but these guys would march into hell for you. <laughs> uh, like, how did you manage this? Like, I would like yeah. to know, please. <laughs> right, right. Um, 
yeah so anyway that's a that's a that's a story. That's a good one. That's a good one. And you're a very gifted storyteller. Sometimes I feel like I can tell stories in words, but I can't uh, like write in like typing, but I just don't have like the oration like you do. Oh, <laughs> well, I've got the BS factor. It plays it's great. it. <laughs> you had me rolling a couple times in there. Um, I'd love to hear about, I just saw that you also, um, you were the a speaker at the diversity, equity, and inclusion conference or workshop for the forest service last year i'm curious how what like what your speech sort of centered around or like maybe like some some changes that you're hoping to at least influence in some small way well it was just um you know that was just a uh, webinar that um that i was trying to it was actually the first time i you know and i use air quotes here came out at the for at a forest service event i was retired at that point and felt like it was uh, safe for me to uh, to say something. And I don't mean safe in terms of that I would have been in danger or, or my career would have been at risk. Um, I, wanted to, I want to mention that I never said anything at work because I didn't want to be known as the trans FMO or the trans firefighter or the trans ops chief or whatever. I wanted to just be known as a good leader and a good firefighter. And so I never brought it up because I didn't want it. I didn't want that to be the issue. So then once I retired, then I felt I could speak up and feel like it was time to say something. Um, so, you know, I can't remember exactly what I talked about, but it was kind of along the lines of what we're saying now about how, um, how it felt to be trans um, at work. And I, I can tell you, people didn't, a lot of people didn't know, at least at certain stages of my career, um, I had a, I had uh, listened into a conversation, and I mentioned this, I uh, listened into a conversation between a, a uh, two forest leaders on this one forest that I was working on, and, um, and the fire staff was not arguing, but Kind of pushing back with this other uh, leader on the forest, where the leader said the topic had been, you know, LGBT stuff, uh, and uh, and the fire staff said absolutely no way. There are no LGBT people working on in my unit because I know if there were. And this other leader said, um, No, I'm telling you, I know that there are, and you need to be aware of that. And the fire staff was like, absolutely not, adamant that there were no. LGBT uh, folks working in his organization because he would know. And so as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, I got to keep my head down. I'm not going to say anything because this guy was a big supporter of mine. He was in part responsible for the, me getting the job. Um, he was absolutely uh, positive about my performance. And, and, um, and so that was a big lesson to me not to not to say anything, not to lift my head up. So that was one of the stories I told. Um, and so my, you know, my recommendation is, you know, you don't know who's what. You don't know whether it's race, whether it's religion, whether it's gender. You don't know as, as employees, as leaders in, in our organization. So you don't need to be saying anything. I mean, whether you believe or you have certain beliefs, doesn't matter. 
you know, we, we're working for the public and we got to be responsible with the money we get. If, if, if I had been less secure, I might have quit when I heard that. I might have been afraid to let anyone know. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that was kind of a, that was like kind of stories I told about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my last question is just kind of maybe what you would tell younger trans women. I actually spoke with a younger trans woman this morning. She is four years into her fire career and she's thinking about getting out this year. Um, but uh, she was like talking about how she doesn't know any women who transitioned when they were in that sort of middle middle career point where they were like a captain or a, even a squad boss. Um, so I'm, I'm actually just curious if you have any any insight or any advice for younger women, younger trans women who are in the fire space and, and are like seeking that career in right. the fire world and hopefully transitioning, transitioning into a career like yours? Well, you know, um, I don't know if this is um, sound advice, but it's my perspective. And my perspective is whether you're, whether you're just a regular female or trans, and I and I and I really emphasize this for women of you know genetic women is you got to be better. You've got to be really good at your job. If you're really good at your job, um, that can make up for a lot of prejudice and biases. It will make up for all of them, but that's the number one. Um, that that's the first. You've got to be better, um, and that may not be fair. Uh, but it's, I think most women, I think most women in the fire service would agree that uh, you can't be just as good as the guys. That doesn't get you ahead. That doesn't get you, earn you anything. Uh, because, you know, Harvard uh, Business Review <clears throat> has done studies that a tall male makes more money than women, than short men. So if you're a white, tall male, you're going to be more successful. Now, if you're a female, you're, you're going to be bringing up the rear of that group. If you're a trans woman, you really, you're really going to have to hustle to, to make up for that. And so I think the first thing I'd say is, is um, you got to be good at your job. You got to take it seriously and you got to work harder than everybody else. Uh, right or wrong, I think that is true. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think after that is you can't have a thin skin. You gotta, you gotta be tough. Um, um, that's you know I'm not a I'm not a intellectual thinker. <laughs> I tend to think in nuts and and my and those are my kind of thoughts on it. You know how do you how do you succeed? Well you by God, you put your head down and you plow ahead. Now that's not necessarily uh, accurate 100%, but I think being better at your job than the others is important. And I think having a thick skin, because people are gonna talk, people are always gonna talk. I, I've had a, uh, uh, struck up a friendship with a young man who was on a unit where I was chief too, and he was just a crew member, but he heard all of the, rumors and bad mouthing about me all all those many many years ago uh 20 years ago maybe and so um so as a leader now he he's angered by what he was hearing about me then 
Um, so you gotta have a you gotta have a thick skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's my those are my uh, really knuckle dragger type words of wisdom. Those are perfect. I think that's straight to the point, and that's something that you learn pretty quickly as a woman, um, let alone as a trans woman. I can only imagine uh, when you get into the fire world is. Yep. All right. Cool. So like, (laughs) I'm definitely going to have to prove myself here. I'm definitely going to have to, to work a little bit harder than the guys in order to carve a place for myself out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? I think we covered everything. Uh, No, I think, um, well, I hope folks will visit my website, Mm bobbyonfire.com and, um, that uh, and if and I appreciate feedback because I'm getting tons of listens, but no one ever. And I shouldn't say never. I don't get that for nine hundred thousand stories listened to. I get very very few comments. So if you folks have recommendations, complaints, you think I'm full of crap, that's okay. I'm I'm I like to hear it. Um, and then, of course, the book is going to be out. It's available for uh, pre-order, either you know online, lots of different online, uh, whether it's Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And uh, I hope that opens eyes to folks. I hope people read it that say, "I don't know any trans people. Um, why would I want to read the book?" I hope you read the book for two reasons. Number one, you probably do know some trans people. You just don't know that you know them because that was way in my life. That's how it was. All right, folks, that's what we've got for you today. Thank you for listening. And a huge thanks to Bobby Scopa for coming on the show and sharing some of her experiences and stories from her very vast career in wildland fire. She is an absolute trope of information and resources and lessons learned. So I really highly encourage you to go check out her website if you're looking at getting into fire or if you have any interest in learning more about the experiences of wildland firefighters and especially trans firefighters. Uh, Her experiences are really enlightening. Her stories are really well told. And her podcast episodes are just a trove of really relatable content and wonderful lessons learned from the fire line over the last 40 years. So take advantage of those resources. Consider pre-ordering her book if you're able to. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting and giving us reviews and sharing with your friends and all the above. We appreciate the support as always. And we will catch you on the next episode.